I shall now tell you the tale of a sitcom carol. Marley was not a member of the sitcom club and therefore doesn't really concern us right now. However, Mooncat and G were, and one Christmas Eve they were arranging their respective festive viewing schedules. Way! Latest DVD order has arrived. Romany Jones Series 4. Fantastic! What's that you got there, G? It's the Christmas Radio Times, of course. There's so many good sitcoms to look forward to. Oh, this festive viewing pile of mine is amazing. The Good Life. The Canadian Tripper's Day with Maxwell Smart. Only Fools and Horses. Australian Are You Being Served. Dad's Army. Quarter of the four unaired episodes of The Sanford Arms. The Vicar of Dibley. The Complete Badil Syndrome. One Foot in the Grave. Delta House on Blu-ray. Faulty Towers. 300 pages of infra-penny fanfiction. Porridge. A pilot sitcom of Jack from On the Buzzies as a Milkman. The Last of the Summer Wine. Movies, games and videos. Undoubtedly, this will be the most piss-poor Christmas of all time. Oh, Scrooge Mooncat, it's so sad to see you wasting the season of festive cheer with such low-quality viewing. Look, I've got three series of the monsters today to pack in. I don't have time for that and the like of that. Besides, Boxing Day is already full with my not-in-your-nelly Netflix binge viewing, not to mention Muller's Ruin. Oh, if only you could see the error of your ways. You celebrate Christmas in your way, and I'll watch this atrocious episode of Odd Man Out again. Mooncat ran home to his squalid little bedsit to watch squalid little sitcoms as he tucked into a plate of deep-fried clichés about Scottish eating habits. Well, I'm completely worn out from watching High and Dry for the twelfth time, so I'm going to turn in. Hang on a second, what's that noise? All that clicking and banging and sound of the clock winding itself up. What's going on there, I wonder? Ooh! I've come to tell you the time has come to stop watching that dross and dreck of those sitcoms from the 1970s. Oh, who are you? Who are you? Oh, it's you, Bertie. Tonight, you will be visited by three ghosts. When's the first one turning up, then, so I can set me watch? The first ghost will be turning up at... Just wait a moment, I just have to check now. I'm just going to go and check on Google. Uh, so, so it's chocolate here, so that's one o'clock. GMT. <laughs> That's right, isn't it? Right, no, it's definitely one o'clock I'm GMT. I'm just not, checking now on Google. It's not, it's not, no, no, not New no, Zealand it's time, is it? Because it's 11 o'clock. Definite, it's, it's two o'clock in the afternoon here, so it's definitely one, <coughs> one a.m. GMT. <clears throat> that's, that's probably it. Well, I don't know about you, dear listeners, but that's get the shit out of me. So I am going off to my four posts of bed, and I'm going to draw the curtains, and I hardly expect to be visited by any silly ghosts. That's probably a blob of gravy that was talking. That's what it was. A big blob of gravy that got stuck and was playing havoc with my digestive system. Did you just call me a blob of gravy? Did you call me a big blob of gravy? No, no, that is actually a direct quote from the text. Anyway, I'm going to turn in now, and, and, and there you are, and you can all piss off. So time passed, tried to get to sleep, yada, 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 and then... Well, that's enough of a Prince Among Men series two for tonight. I shall carry on with that in the morning. Ah, 1am, time for sleepy buys. Hang on a second, what's that noise? There's something coming out of the cupboard. Uh, uh, just when you thought it was safe to go back on the podcast. First of all, you do not sound like a ghost. You sound like Sid James in some carry-on film going... Wah. Actually, he never really did that, did he, Sid? No, he, really, no. No, no. That's more of a sort of kind of... He's must really just a laugh, it was. In a way, am I given to understand that you would be one of the three ghosts whose emergence was predicted earlier on this evening? Yes, I'm one of the ghosts, though. It's slow and cumbersome, but I got here eventually. I did. It took me a little while, but, you know, hey, there you go. And which one are you then, eh? I'm the uh, ghost of uh, Christmas past, I am. Right, okay, so presumably you have brought with you some sort of Christmas 
Carol-related sitcom to scare me witless. Now, is this a goodie or a baddie or somewhere in between? Uh, this is a quite good actual sitcom, it is. Um, it's one which is uh, you may have seen in uh, film form before. I see. Tell me more. It's top rating show of 1969 for ITV. Carry on Christmas from 1969. I see. So what you're saying is that rather than being exclusively on the film, the carry-on team were also on the televisuals with their body antics as well? Yes, yes, they were on there for a couple of years, between 1969 and, well, the early 70s, it was basically, doing their double entendres all over the place. Now, am I given to understand that this has nothing to do with the carry-on laughing television series from ATV in the mid-1970s, or indeed carry-on laughing from 1981, which was a compilation of the film clips, but rather this was a series of four television shows made by Thames over a four-year period? Yes, it was a series of um, four specials over the Christmas period from 1969 into the early 70s, uh, done by Thames, uh, to reflect what the carry-on films were doing, but putting them in a television context. On a scale of 1 through to 10, how faithful an adaptation of A Christmas Carol is this? I would say it's about a, a 6. It does have the characters like Ebenezer Scrooge and Bob Cratchit, but they do veer from time to time, whereas the story itself gets interspersed with stand-up and also sketches. I see. And so who have we got in the role of Mr Scrooge? Uh, Mr Scrooge, or Ebenezer to his friends, is played by Sid James. Also, Charles Hawtree appearing as the Spirit of Christmas Past. Um, the Spirit of Christmas Present is played by Barbara Windsor. You can guess what happens with Barbara Windsor and Sid James. And the Ghost of Christmas Future is played by Bernard Breslau as an over six foot uh, hippie from the 60s, even though this is Victorian Britain. Reminiscent of the ending to Carry On Camping that nobody remembers. Yes, exactly. It's like that he carried on with his character and no one uh, told him that the film was over. I've seen Carry On Camping more times than I can count. That's not true. Of course that's not true. But I've seen it many, many times. I can't remember how many times. And every time without fail, that ending surprises me. I think, oh God, there's that, isn't there? Oh, bloody hell. That's the one bit of the film which has dated, funnily enough, even though, of course, that would have been topical and bang up to date in 69. It does sort of age itself, especially, like you say, when you do see it on the television, which will most probably be over the Christmas period on some channel anyway, it will. I can tell you exactly when it will be on. It will be on in 2015, because it is, in fact, the very first thing that's going to be on ITV in the new year after the Big Ben Bells. At least we know that it's on this year. It's a staple mark to know that it will be always on during the Christmas and New Year period anyway. I quite like the idea of seeing in the New Year with a carry-on. I did actually accidentally see in the New Year with carry-on girls once. I didn't see in the New Year. I've been out to a New Year do. Came back about 1am, pissing about the TV. Oh, wait, hey, carry-on girls has just started in gold. It seemed like the perfect way to see in the New Year. So yes, if you are... Outside of Scotland, if you're inside of Scotland, then no carry-on for you, but you get Jackie Bird and Nally Bain and what have you playing fiddles. But otherwise, yeah, carry-on camping, ten past midnight on New Year's Day on ITV. Wahey. Now, am I right in thinking that we have a guest appearance by someone who is quite often thought of as a carry-on star, in actual fact he was in only two of the films? Yes, Frankie Howard appears in this uh, special playing in the Ghost of a Christmas Present sketch and Robert Browning, the poet, and also later in the Ghost of Christmas Future sketch, Frankie Howard does appear in that sketch as the uh, fairy godmother. Okay. Now, if I remember correctly, there are some deviations in this. For example, I think that we end up at one point 
telling the story of Frankenstein. That's the uh, first ghost of Christmas past to save Ebenezer Scrooge. Did not give the money to Terry Scott, who's playing Dr. Frank N. Stein, to be able to finish his uh, creature, played by Van Breslau. And also Peter Butterworth as Dracula, the cohort of uh, Frankenstein. And at the conclusion of this piece, does Scrooge himself, does he see the error of his ways? Is he a reformed character? He sees the errors of his ways by seeing the um, three ghosts which come and visit him during the night. But unfortunately, where he stored his money in Chamber Pot, he goes out to Hattie Jakes' character, asks her to take a bit. So obviously, well, knowing what the carry-ons are like, uh, she gets confused and obviously calls Bernard Breslau, who's playing a policeman at this point. So Ebenezer Scrooge gets dragged off for trying to pick up um, Hattie Jokes' character. Bernard Breslau, he'd be about the right size. He'd be just the right height for a policeman back in the day. I mean, nowadays, of course, you know... Oh, policemen, they're getting younger all the time and shorter all the time and so on. But back in the day, yeah, you had, like, big, tall men like Jack Warner and what have you as policemen. So, yeah, Bernard Bresley would be absolutely spot on for that role, wouldn't he? Well, as I was going to say, there's a link between um, Carry On Christmas and the 1979 edition, Christmas edition of 321 there is. Because the theme of uh, the 1979 edition or Christmas edition of 321, is Dickensian Christmas. Terry Scott is also in that uh, edition of 321, playing Bill Sykes, which, of course, uh, does feature in um, Scrooge. He's in all of a twist, isn't he, Bill Sykes? I think I've got my Dickens in a twist there. Well, it's easily done. Yes, of course, we have previously discussed the Christmas 79 321 on the podcast because it features a classic adaptation of A Christmas Carol with Wilfred Bramble, which takes ever so slight liberties with the story. The carry-on at Christmas shows, hugely popular. I think this one went out on Christmas Eve, 69. There's a couple of odd little details about these shows. One is that Kenneth Williams never appears in any of these shows and indeed doesn't appear in the ATV shows because Kenneth Williams, he didn't really tend to get involved a great deal in the Caddy on spin-offs. Like, for example, there was a stage show called Caddy on London. He wasn't involved in that. There's an actual reason for this. At the time, whereas um, Kenneth Williams had been appearing in the film, he was under contract with the BBC at the time. So, basically, he was making his own show, so he could not appear in these specials, he couldn't. Right, okay, and would this have been a vehicle principally for himself, or was this around the time he was doing International Cabaret? I think it was both, really. I think that he did have his own series, but also he was a compare of um, International Cabaret as well. So, obviously, being on a contract with the BBC, they would not release him to go over to ITV just to appear in the um, Carry On specials. And I think that's a reason why that obviously in the 1969 one, that's a reason why uh, Frankie Howard obviously appears. And then, of course, we have one of the most famous anecdotes about the Carry Ons associated actually with one of these Christmas shows, and that is the departure from the team of Charles Hawtrey. His behaviour, let's say, was getting more erratic as the years were going on. As I remember, the story was that Charles Hawtrey wanted to get top billing in 72 because there was no Sid James in that episode, nor was there any Frankie Howard, for example. He put this to Peter Rogers, and Peter Rogers answered, as he always did, to inquiries like this, that no one is above the carry-on title. The carry-on title is always at the top of the billing. And his own choice was to have Hattie Jakes have top billing as far as the artists themselves. And so Charles Hawtrey refused to take this for an answer, and 
simply said to Peter Rogers, I shall await your phone call to confirm that I've got top billing and took himself off. And of course, the phone call never came. And it happened so late in the day that that episode Carry On Stuffing actually has an illustration of Charles Hawtrey in the TV Times, the Christmas 72 TV Times. But of course, by the time you actually get to the listing, he's been replaced by Norman Rossington. And then you have Jimmy Logan in Carry On Girls playing a role which clearly is a Charles Hawtrey type role. So they've managed to do a little bit of juggling to be able to sort everything out. But of course, then that was that was it. Charles Hawtrey never made another Carry On film and was never associated with the Carry Ons again. If we're starting around 1972, the two which are the most remembered these Christmas specials were obviously the 1969 and the 1972 special because... You know, the 69 special was based on A Christmas Carol. The 1972 episode seems more like a series of sketches. And by 1973, when it is definitely more like a sketch format, it is with Sid James returning. Yeah, 72 is a bit of an odd one because it was initially written by Talbot Rothwell, but Giselle Health, then Dave Freeman took over the writing and so it has a slightly disjointed feel to it. Just before we get to the final one, of course, we've got to go back a couple of years because there was, of course, Carry On Long John, Christmas 1970, which isn't, you'd think, the most Christmassy of themes. But as we've already established with Carry On Christmas in 69, the overall theme is fairly loose and it's nice to have an outing for the Carry On team at Christmas, especially as there are no Carry On films which are Christmas related. I mean, of course, as we said, they often get seen at Christmas, but of course nowadays they're on all the time. There's usually a Carry On film on ITV every Sunday morning. But there's no actual Carry On film which concentrates on Christmas, and so these four episodes do sort of fill a nice gap when it comes to the continued repetition of the Carry On series. It's a strange one. Uh, I know we've had their TV specials, but it's a strange one that they never even tried a sort of Carry On Christmas film. Because you can imagine that it would fit perfectly. So Carry On Christmas in 69 has also taken advantage of it being the first colour Christmas for viewers of ITV and the BBC One. If you were posh, you might already have had Christmas in colour a couple of times on BBC Two, but they're showing all that funny highfalutin stuff. As far as it being a spectacle, it does take advantage of that. There's some lovely sets and you've got some nice, supposedly outdoor scenes as well. You've also got a slightly unsettling sequence right slap bang in the middle. I mean, okay, I'll leave yourself box to describe this, but it's sort of like a little dance sequence. The male members of the cast, minus Sid James, are dressed up as schoolgirls with um, Hattie Jakes as a nun. That's the one, yep. It sort of takes advantage of its uh, own nature. It's almost pantomime-ish. Terry Scott dressed as a dame, using that as a sketch. Say it a pantomime, right? If there needs to be a set change. Obviously, you need... A something in front of the actual uh, theatre curtains. It's actually got a feel like that it has. You know, even though the set isn't changing or anything like that. And of course, the second of these, Carry On Again Christmas in 1970, this does suffer somewhat from being recorded in the middle of the ITV colour strike. So it's one which, unfortunately, doesn't really get picked up a great deal for... Pete's, whereas Carry On Christmas itself has been shown by Channel 5 many times since, I believe, 2002. I think it was the first time that it got an airing on there. Carry On Stuffing is a bit more readily available. I think that one's been given away with a few newspapers over the years and what have you. And the final one, of course, is Carry On Christmas, 73. That one features, amongst others, Joan Sims, also Jack Douglas as well. The 73 73- special looks at um, 
how ancestors enjoyed Christmas over a century. Using the device of Sir James playing Santa Claus, he's a storyteller to sort of get us into the sketches. It's almost like an entertainment show in itself. You can imagine they could have had a musical guest. It's full individual sketches, which look back on a Christmas past. Yeah, I think the 72 outing does lack something by not having Sid there. There is, of course, one additional Carry On Christmas entity, although it is not really an original piece, but in 1983, there was a follow-up to the Carry On Laughing series, which had Barbara Windsor and Kenneth Williams, introducing some clips from the Carry Ons that went out at Christmas time that year. Unfortunately, that's one that's never been released on DVD. I'd love to see that. I think it'd be absolutely ideal for an airing on, say, ITV Free or a channel like that. It's perfectly formatted for half an hour on commercial TV. So overall then, Ghost of Christmas Past, if I watch Carry On Christmas 1969, do you think that I'm going to get the full Dickens effect? Yes, yes. It's a... Most people know the way that the carry-ons deal with historical subjects. Even though they put their own spin on it, um, it does actually uh, go quite close to the story itself. Yes, there are points where um, it does veer away from that. And it's also uh, notable for when Frankie Howard does appear in the sketch of the uh, Ghost of Christmas Present, playing Robert Browning, the poet, that he actually goes into uh, his stand-up routine, talking to the audience like one of his own shows, trying to even make Hattie Jates' corpse. Well, I'm glad that I can rely on Carry On Christmas for an explanation of the work of Dickens, because most of my historical knowledge comes from the Carry Ons. I mean, I view Carry On Henry as a documentary, for example. So, if you've not already seen Carry On Christmas from 1969, you can see it this Boxing Day on Channel 5 at 10.25pm. Later on, at 12.35 in the morning, is a screening of Carry On Spying, which was Barbara Windsor's first Carry On. Okay then, Ghost of Christmas Past, well, you have done your best, or worst. I remain unconvinced... However, I understand there are two more spirits coming to scare the shit out of me. And in the meantime, I'm going to continue with Oh Happy Band, episode 5. Oh, there go them dar bloody bells again. Oh, this'll be the next one coming. Oh, hang on a second. What's this emerging under the carpet? Hey! Who are you? Tommy Trinder? Hey! I presume that you are the ghost of Christmas long ago. It would be fair to say that yes, I am. Sounds remarkably similar to the ghost of Christmas past, but what the hell. Okay, so what have you brought to scare the living shit out of me? I have brought with me Blackadder's Christmas Carol. Ah, I get it. You've brought something good so that I will see the error of my ways by watching something good instead of the big pile of turds that I've been watching so far this Christmas period. Well, if only that was simple. In fact, it starts off good, and then it starts to get a little sinister, a little dark, because it's Christmas Carol in reverse. The character that we know and love, Edmund Blackadder, in this particular guise isn't your usual blackadder. He is a very lovely, kind man, the nicest man in all of England, at the beginning at least. Well, that doesn't sound as if there's any particular story to be told. I mean, he's a nice enough chap, kindest man of England, lovely. So, therefore, there's no need for any further plot. No, that's it. Yep, nothing left. That's Cool. Well, help yourself to some eggnog before you go. And make sure you close that window because it's feckin' freezing in here. Oh, actually, I forgot. Sorry, there is a, something that does happen when a ghost of Christmas past then turns up. And this is where it gets rather meta, I suppose. But ultimately, he starts to be shown not so much the error of his ways, but more the benefits of the error of his ways. And subsequently starts to see the merit of not being particularly pleasant to people. Except there's much more to it than that. I mean, for starters... Let's consider this. If you look at other Blackadders, for example, the comedy tends to stem in part from the general cynicism and nastiness 
of the character of Blackadder. So when you have the world on its head and you have Blackadder as a nice, kindly gentleman, you have to have potentially over-exaggerated, nasty characters surrounding him. And so ultimately, for the first part of Blackadder's Christmas Carol, at least, you have him playing straight man to far more exaggerated characters. For example, the likes of Dennis Lil as Beadle, with three large orphans. You've got Pauline Melville as Mrs. Scratchit. Pauline Melville, by the way, is actually more of a revered author now more than anything else, praised by Salman Rushdie. But then you also have Nicola Bryant as Millicent with a very shrill laugh. And subsequently, you can actually hear the audience going, oh, like that at one point, I'm quite sure. So ultimately, you have these slightly exaggerated, slightly disgusting characters. Also a horrible little street urchin as well. He's Because of his kindness, he gets rinsed dry. I mean, to actually see Blackadder, it's, it's almost disheartening at this point, which I think would illustrate why that when he does eventually turn bad, there's... I think there's at least one or two hearty applauses just to see him being nasty again. Yes, because I think if it was a straightforward Blackadder's nice, then decides to be nasty, then that's not really heartwarming. Even if it then puts everything back in sync with previous Blackadders. But because the people who are taking advantage of him are so nasty, then you're more pleased to see them get their comeuppance and see Blackadder turn bad. Indeed. And that would probably explain why it's even more absurd that with this world turned on its head, you've got Blackadder as the straight man and Baldrick as the voice of reason. Well, what a jolly sort of fellow. Looks like a fat git to me. That kind of exchange. It's sort of <laughs> blunt honesty, which is usually reserved for for Blackadder. It's a bizarre world we enter, one that doesn't seem correct until really the, the end where he goes from sort of wearing predominantly white attire and goes back into his black attire certainly when he comes out to the front of the uh, moustache shop, which apparently what it is, although the only real way to indicate at all that it is a, it is a moustache shop, aside from Hugh Laurie's narration at the beginning, is also, it's just, there's a big wooden moustache in the shop. And that's it. There's no indication. Oh, and uh, of course, some heads with, with different shaped moustaches as props in the, in the shop window. So is this somewhere where you go to get a falsy? if for whatever reason you don't feel like growing your own tash? Or is it somewhere where perhaps you can get your own one enhanced and preened and trimmed? It's hard to say, especially since especially since neither of them have moustaches. A slightly odd gag. But but then again, it's, it's an odd world that we fall into. I mean, according to the Blackadder script book, it's not even recognised as canon to the Blackadder saga. In the script book, you have the history of the Blackadders inserted in between the scripts. So it sort of connects the dots between one to two, two to three, three to four. Between three and four, it doesn't acknowledge this Blackadder. What about all the things such as the Cavalier years? I believe that might be included. I would need to double check, but I believe that is included. It's certainly interesting that in J.F. Roberts' excellent book, The true history of Blackadder, you have a script that was meant to be, I'd imagine, the earliest story of Blackadder, which was going to be Blackadder in Bethlehem. That didn't go too far, primarily because of the sort of controversy it would have ascertained. And of course, as we discussed off air previously, there was enough of an issue with just the one line, which thankfully on the edition that we've seen is preserved. But on the DVD box set, that line is not included. And that would be the one regarding the nativity play where a dog is used to replace baby Jesus. Thankfully, the kids that watch love it and they want the dog to come back to Easter and have him nailed to a cross. And it doesn't receive a huge laugh, but it, obviously it was deemed controversial enough to be cut from the DVD Ultimate Edition. I am intrigued to see the Ultimate Edition and see if there are any other cuts. I imagine there are. Well, we were speculating about this off air, and this is just wild thoughts on my part, but there is a possibility that this may have found its way back in due to remastering. Because quite often, if you get edits made to shows shortly after their original transmission, then the edited one, that becomes a version that then goes into syndication. It's the one that turns up in gold and ITV free and all sorts. The original line is just sort of forgotten about. But then if it undergoes a remastering process and they start with the original, then suddenly all your edits come back in again. And it might be that that line now doesn't attract the same number of complaints. We should point out, of course, that Blackadder's Christmas Carol is showing on BBC Two on Christmas Day 
at half past eight in the evening. However, it is a shortened version. It's only half an hour long, whereas the original is 45 minutes. So there's been a huge whopping great chunk out of it. It'd be wow. interesting to see if that line stays in there and also what they lose and yet manage to keep the storyline coherent. Would it be fair to say that that is slightly angering? You can understand the odd cut here and there for time constraints, but 15 minutes? Really? I'd say yes and no. I'd say it's not angering in as much as BBC Two wants to put out a half an hour version at half past eight on Christmas night. Fine. It would be angering if, as has happened before, that version suddenly then became the go-to version. So that every time it was played from then on, it's that version that gets played. Now, Gold are also running Blackadder's Christmas Carol. That's where we saw our copy from, with the uncut line in it. And presumably, if they are still airing the full-length version, then all's well and dandy. But yeah, it would be a nuisance if the cut-down version suddenly became the norm. I would say, in response to that, though, that rather than cutting it down so that they can have something nice and comfy for an 8.30 to 9 o'clock slot on BBC Two... Just show something else that's half an hour and don't butcher something that's 45 minutes. Very bizarre. Especially since, according to, once again, I refer to the wonderful book by J.F. Roberts, The True History of Blackadder, it wasn't unusual to adhere to a slightly poor taste. I mean, they apparently wanted to release a Christmas single called Baldrick We Hate You. It's a variation of Grandma We Love You. But they wasn't deemed sort of the best quality it could be. But I, I'd love to hear that. I don't know if they actually recorded it or if they recorded it, just never released it. But I, I'm very intrigued to hear that. Well, I am intrigued to see whether any Christmas related singles that were sung by sitcom characters that were released. I mean, this one was meant to be released or was debated about being released at one point, but wasn't. But I can't recall if there were any sitcom character Christmas singles that were released. I don't I, know. I am, I'm struggling. I mean, the closest I'm getting, and it's not, he played a character in a sitcom, but it wasn't a tie. And the closest I'm getting is Mel Smith and Kim Wilde, Christmas 87. Which was a lovely wee song. But no, I'm not getting... I, mean, I was thinking about Neil Hall in my shoe. That wasn't Christmas. Nothing was ever a Frank Spencer record. Renee DMC. There was a Wombles, of course. It's not happening. No, but if, dear listener, if you know of a sitcom character-related novelty record that was released at Christmas, doesn't matter whether it was a hit or not, ideally, if it wasn't a hit, all the better, then please send us the details. We're so many episodes into the sitcom club and there's been no mention of Alo Alo, Renee DMC. Here's my Christmas present to our listeners who may have not ever heard of what we're talking about. Renee Artois and Yvette, the waitress, i.e. Gordon Kay and Vicky Michelle, recorded their version of Je T'aime in the 80s and released it as a single. The B-side, however, is far more interesting. It is their version of a rap song, and it is called Renee DMC, as in, of course, Run DMC. And it's really rather good in its own way. And you can't go wrong with Gorgon K rapping, frankly. My gift to the listeners is a YouTube link on Twitter, which you can retweet for the benefit of those who would like to hear Renee DMC fresh from fresh from the vinyl. But back to our reality. And the other thing that I noticed about the interactions with certain Blackadder characters is that there are familiar encounters. For example, the interaction between Baldrick and Blackadder with Baldrick trying to count is reminiscent of Blackadder teaching Baldrick to count in Blackadder 2. And then, of course, you've got the reunited duo of Miriam Margolis and Jim Broadbent, who had previously starred together in The Blackadder first series as Spanish Infanta Maria Escaloza and Don Speaking English, an interpreter. And of course, they're reprising their chemistry as Victoria and Albert. So it's nice to see that together. And of course, one of my favourite lines, which I don't know what context I'd use it, but I, still, I do, it always stands out. Nine, I am from Glasgow. <laughs> In terms of the flashbacks, now, Christmas for me, certainly as an adult, is about nostalgia. So I imagine that for an audience to get an extra taste of Blackadder's past is a bit of a treat. And so we go to Blackadder 2 and Blackadder the 3rd. We don't go to the Blackadder, although I suppose... I don't know. I, I do wonder how that would have been. But I suppose 
it's such a different character. I don't know. What what's your thoughts on that? On not having a a flashback to the Black Adder. The first time I ever saw the Black Adder was when it got peak time BBC One repeat around about 1990. I think it was. And before then, I'd never seen it because I don't remember it ever being repeated whilst Blackadder 2 or 3 or 4 were going out. So it was sort of the forgotten Blackadder series. But to take advantage of the tension and audience appreciation of the conclusion of Blackadder Goes Forth, shortly thereafter they had a repeat one of the Blackadder. And that was the first time I'd ever seen it. And of course, yes, it is quite different. It's quite a different show. It would have been nice, but given that it hadn't been repeated a great deal in the previous three years, I think it's probably best left out of this. And the fact that you've got, like you say, many Mark Orleys and Jim Broadbent, that's a nice sort of nod to the first series. But then you have the characters that you actually really associate with Blackadder. Yeah, and I suppose the Blackadder of the first series doesn't have that demonstrative effect that Ebenezer Blackadder is looking for in terms of how bad guys have all the fun. Because he's much more of a flawed Blackadder. He he tries to be cunning. He's still learning to be crafty. You also have the problem with Baldrick as well, because whereas Baldrick's 2 and 3 and Christmas Carol and Future are all equally as dim as each other. And of course, in The Blackadder, Baldrick is pretty much the sharpest character around. You know, he's the one who's constantly correcting Blackadder and setting them on the right path when he's coming up with his daft ideas. Also, you have the absence of Tim McKinnery. In the first and second series, you had Baldrick and Percy together. And then the third series, he makes the one appearance. In the fourth series, he splinters away from Blackadder's team core team as it were and is is now on on the side of Milchit. to be fair i mean it's also great to see the characters again it's great to see the actors fall straight back into those characters you know obviously it goes without saying rowan atkinson does it flawlessly it's just nice to kind of revisit these characters albeit briefly we do also have an extra guest as well in the form of robbie coltrane refresh my memory had he appeared in it before i don't believe that he had and he's not in the fourth series either so yeah, it's just nice for him to pop in, I suppose. I'm trying to think of something that he starred in with any of the cast prior. Because when I think Robbie Coltrane and I think 80s, I suppose what really connects Robbie Coltrane to that sort of arena of the cast, I suppose, would be Alfresco. Yes, and also there are rough links with shows such as A Kick Up the 80s, which, of course, also featured Miriam Margolis and was around at the same time as you had things like Not Nine O'Clock News. You had a lot of sketch shows on BBC Two and a lot of nice experimental comedy and what have you. BBC Scotland was quite the forefront of making a lot of those shows at that time. Robbie Coltrane would have been mostly associated with those and then later on, of course, then for dramatic roles and things like Tutti Frutti and then Cracker. Yeah, it's... Nice to see Robbie Coltrane just pop in, really. And and that's more or less what he literally does. He pops in and the character completely screws up, basically. He goes in there, just popping in, saying hello. Oh, yeah. And um, your past selves, well, <laughs> they weren't particularly pleasant. Oh, show us then. This is an official Sitcom Club podcast interruption. Before you all tweet in, I have set DCT and Mooncat straight on the fact that Robbie Coltrane had already appeared in Blackadder, in Blackadder III, as Dr. Johnson, whom I am also obliged to describe as the great man of letters. It's interesting to see that maybe at the heart of this particular incarnation of Blackadder, he's still predominantly bad, because he's the one who coerces him into showing Blackadder the past. And then there's sort of little harsh, strong lines, you know, just show it. You know. Yes. Yeah, but that, by that point, he's starting to turn. Yeah. You get the impression that perhaps after this sort of long, disheartening day, that he needs a break. And so when he does, and when he changes, and when he knocks the urchin out of the window, there's an applause from the audience because, well, aside from the fact that no one wants the urchin to kind of get away with it, it's also, ah, welcome back, Blackadder. And suddenly a lot of familiar comedy is compacted into that sort of last couple of scenes because it's the Blackadder that we know and love back to form. I think also there's a nice appreciation from the audience that it was never really in any doubt to begin with. You knew that Blackadder was eventually going to come round, so to speak, that we were going to see 
the recognisable Black Arrow. There's no way that it could have finished with him the way he was at the beginning. And yet, you still enjoyed the journey. It hasn't been that, oh, I see where this is going, and then you're just waiting for it to play out. You've enjoyed the process. And so when it comes, it's quite a nice little moment. It's not just, oh, okay, we've reached destination. Yeah. And I suppose it's definitely worth mentioning, of course, about the future incarnation. And this may be why it has been omitted from the scriptbook, because that is essentially meant to cover the years from Blackadder 1 to 4. The future segment is potentially what makes it non-canonical, because you're shown two alternative versions of the future. Also, it ultimately makes it a little bit impossible for the script book to then elaborate further because we see snippets of the past. And also, what? how do you really word that as well, I suppose, in the script book? Do you say, oh, well, he was the nicest man, but something happened one Christmas and he was back to normal. So maybe that's maybe that's why they just skipped it. But it would have been nice to see the scripts. It would have been really nice to see the script in the script book. I don't want to sort of go into too much detail because I, I do strongly recommend the book by J.F. Roberts, The True History of Blackadder. Is it available for Kindle? I believe so. Three ninety nine. The True History of The Black Adder by J.F. Roberts. Well, that is particularly smashing because, of course, people may be listening to this on Christmas Eve at, say, three minutes past seven when all the shops are shut. But these days the shops are never shut thanks to the e-electronics. So where would you rank Blackadder's Christmas Carol in the top five Blackadders? Well, I would say that it's quite hard for me to rank it as such, especially if it's non-canonical. I would say that having revisited it, I would say it'd be somewhere in the middle, if I'm honest. It'd be like sort of third, perhaps. And that's not even to say that the fifth would be of low quality. It's just, I guess it's just a case of what has been revisited most recently. What I will say is that the first Blackout of Blackout of One, at the moment, would certainly be in the top two. And I think that's because, one, it's been a while since I revisited it, so it stands firmly in mind as a good series. But also, it's I think it's underrated, the first series. So I agree. Yes, I agree. It's always worth seeing, because it does turn up late at night on gold every once in a while. It's definitely worth watching, because yeah, it, it's, it's its own series. Whereas 2, 3, and 4, they automatically draw comparisons with each other. One is on its own. It is a damn good series, and okay... As Michael Grade put it, perhaps not enough laughs per pound, but take the money out of the equation. It's a very, very well-made show, and yeah, it's got some bloody good lines and scenes in it. Well, I appreciate you showing me Blackadder's Christmas Carol, and I will take on board what you have said, and I will take on board the importance of watching high-quality sitcoms over Christmas. However, I have now got to return to all the unmade Christmas episodes of The Ropers, so I shall bid you farewell. Help yourself to a mince pie and a glass of port on the way out. Can I take these figs as well? I've got a cat, so... Let me just look that up. Is that is that filthy? No, no, it's fine. Okay, right. Good. Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to go back now. So uh, can I just wish you and, and all your listeners, uh, whoever they may be, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And here's to more wonderful sitcom investigations in the new year. Goodbye! Goodbye. <laughs> Oh, well, who's this turning up at this time in the morning? It could not be, could it not? Yes, it is. The ghost of Christmas future? No, the ghost of Christmas that has already happened. But hang on, I had him earlier on. He showed me Carry On Christmas. No, that was past. And then it was Christmas long ago, and I'm the ghost of Christmas that has already happened. Well, um, how the hell am I supposed to bring a sitcom from the future? That's impossible. If it wasn't the middle of the night and I'm freezing me ball bearings off, then I would challenge this, but what the hell? Okay, so you're the first spirit. You've been sent to torment me or whatever the hell. Now, to be perfectly honest, you're going to have to up your game, you lot, because so far I've actually quite enjoyed what the spirits have brought me. I've had Sid James, and I've had Blackadder, all good fun. So if this is meant to scare the shit out of me in terms of bucking up my ideas as to what sitcoms I should be watching in the new year, then you'd better have something pretty damn bloody dreadful in your arsenal. I bring with me Alleluia, starring Thora Heard. I see no problem with this, but yeah, okay, let's give it a viewing. Go on then. I don't have a harp glissando to indicate the passage of time, so... 
You have watched Alleluia starring Thora Heard, the Christmas special from Christmas 1984. Okay, in its defence, it wasn't Snakes and Ladders. Right, so it's not that the Snakes and Ladders is still the baseline, it's still the worst thing you've ever watched, right? Pretty much, but that actually was given a run for its money. If that had gone on for another 10 minutes, then I would have been... I may have had to toss a coin. Or just cover my eyes and make loud noises until it went away. What didn't you like about it? Right, well, for a start... No, Thor heard. <laughs> I have no problem with Thor heard. I have no problem with Patsy Rollins or David Dacre. My initial problem with this is... Where did they get that annoying bloody kid from? And why doesn't he just shut the fuck up? Instead of making these <laughs> cheeky little comments... But that's his whole shtick. That's his whole reason for being in this show is to make cheeky comments. It's a bit like the thing that I outlined when we were talking about Metal Mickey. The something that's not supposed to be sassy and give you back chat, but does. In Metal Mickey, it was Metal Mickey. In Hallelujah, it's a child who's supposed to be adorable and innocent. And instead, his favourite song is Whole Lot of Woman. Now, that's either the 1961 song by The Contours or the 1958 song by Marvin Rainwater. Or maybe there's a third song. Marvin Rainwater. Now, he was Uncle Albert, wasn't he? Now, Marvin Rainwater was on a 1958 edition of Sunday Night at the London Palladium that exists. and oh. has Tommy Trinder. Oh. And Dick Sean turns up in that particular show later. Oh. You're finding this more interesting than Hallelujah, aren't you? Yes. Well, there are two children with lines. There's a whole little bunch of children, each of whom gets their moment in the close-up, reacting. Okay, I am fairly sure that there was some sort of competition run on Calendar, the Yorkshire Evening News programme, to be in the Christmas episode of Hallelujah. So yes, you have Eric, the little boy who's supposed to be cheeky and is merely annoying. And he sings the Top of the Pops theme. Got a whole lot of love. <laughs> For an extended sort of 12-minute section. But that, that could have been lost, to be honest. That section should have just been cut out. Didn't add anything to the story. And Jennifer, who is supposed to be, I don't know, the sweet voice of reason or just there to offset Eric's disagreeable... Do you think Do you think the children is the reason that there are what we, on the sitcom club, call hawtry edits? Do we need to explain Hotry edits for anybody who's we explained just them once. joined us? We explained them on the Nelly podcast. Nelly cast, which is a classic and is available now in the Sitcom Club archives at sitcomclub.com. Well, at the risk of being tiresome internet explainers, let's just be charitable and assume that people don't memorise these things. Charles Hotry was once on a show called Movie Memories, a chat show with Roy Hudd. Charles was not at his best. I think he was a bit tired, a little bit the worse for wear. Maybe it was a difficult journey to the studio. He was just a little bit off his game. As a result, the editing is quite strange and you can tell just by weird little sounds that don't match and reaction shots that don't seem to line up that this was a difficult interview. Charles answers a question that wasn't asked. In fact, his answer seems to come halfway through. can't remember what Roy Hood's first question is, but it's something about how did he get into the business? And Charles' answer is, they called it primary school in those days. <laughs> something along those lines. I seem to recall that when Roy Hood introduces him, he is already halfway down the stairs the first time that we see him, and he is pointing in the direction of Roy Hood as if to indicate... Aha, I found you. If you were playing hide-and-seek, then you've lost. So it's a name we've given to a certain style of editing, Hawtrey editing, where it's like there's a reaction shot that seems to have come from a different day and is just not quite in sync with everything. And yeah, this is that. Do you think that's... Alleluia is full of that. Do you think it's the children's fault? Probably, because getting them to react exactly the right time could be, I don't be, think we've really quite emphasised how much we dislike Eric. So what, our reference is to what, right, so what happens, Thora Heard, we haven't even explained what Alleluia is. Right, Eric's a, Eric's a bastard. Right, there you go. Now, so, okay. So Alleluia is, is a sitcom about a Salvation Army 
regiment. I don't know what the correct word is. And Thorherd is clearly the commanding officer of this Tent. particular unit of the Salvation Army. Patsy Rowland is immediately below her, I assume, and David Dacre is there. They're having a Christmas party. In fact, I think it's a Boxing Day party. This show went out on the 21st of December. Who and they're already talking about, well, like the Salvation Army. Uh, this particular fictional core of the Salvation Army, apparently. Outpost. Okay, fine. So they're having a Christmas party for the children, and the children are all supposed to be adorable and go, yeah, it's nice. <laughs> well, that would be quite <laughs> chilling, but... And um, Eric is, is supposed to be the cheeky little bother causer, so they all sing a Christmas hymn, a Christmas carol, and Thora says, what should we sing next? And Eric goes, I got a whole lot of woman. Yeehaws. <laughs> Smothered in gravy, Texas style. <laughs> uh, no, he doesn't say that. He'd it, it, probably win a bit of goodwill with me if he did that. <laughs> so they're supposed to indicate that, I'm oh, that Eric is cheeky. i barbecue and sauce right here. <laughs> I'm going to lull her on. So that's that's Eric. We're supposed to find him cheeky and adorable, and he's just unpleasant. Well, actually, at the end of the show, David Dacre takes his belt to him, or at least it's implied that that's what's going to happen. Oh, is that all that happens? I assumed he took him out and glued a stick of dynamite to him. Dealt with him the old-fashioned way. One of the problems with this whole show, and we haven't seen any other episodes of Hallelujah, so we're only passing judgment on this, this assumption of more reverence than there really is in the minds of the audience, if that makes any sense. Later on, we have this whole thing of Jacob Marley trying to save somebody's soul. He's not called Scrooge. The not-Scrooge figure says, well, the Salvation Army woman's already seen me. And Jacob Marley says, oh, they always get in there first. And that's supposed to be a joke, as if somebody talking mildly irreverently about the Salvation Army is a good belly laugh. Uh, Am I talking to myself? Does that make any sense? I know what you mean. It's not that I want blasphemy on Christmas Eve, 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 Eve from a Salvation Army sitcom. But no, if it's a twee little comment, it shouldn't get a response as if it was blasphemy. Although, having said that, I quite like those audience reactions in Nearest and Dearest. When Hilda Baker says, oh yeah, he he was pulling it at the time, and then the audience reacts as if... Yeah, because that's filth. That really is filth for its time. No, she was talking about the handle of the, the machine when it broke. And if you're thinking of anything else, then you're a pervert. Anyway, the show blunders along. And all of that business at the start, with the kid singing Whole Lot of Women, all seven verses of it, all, all that's unnecessary because it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't take the story anywhere. Then we've got this like woo dream sequence, and then Joan Sims turns up. And that's when the episode properly gets underway. So all that business beforehand, where they're having the sing song, there's no need for all that. Just It strikes me that this episode was commissioned as a surprise. I mean, what else has Dick Sharples written in Loving Memory? George Mildred, the movie. Well, okay, but <laughs> I liked In Loving Memory. So we've got to assume that he has chops, and this just doesn't quite seem to measure up. I suspect executive meddling. It just seems like they commissioned a certain number of episodes from him and then said, um, obviously, there's the Christmas special. And he said, okay, I can... I can." Are you blaming Paul Fox? Well, maybe. I'm not naming any names. I have a copy of the employee handbook for Yorkshire Television somewhere. I could look through that and see if that gives any clues later. And report is, there any, is there any guidance in there with regard to the stage It's involved? mainly about parking. But anyway... <laughs> It's not like a big, lovely, decorated thing covered in chevrons. It's typewritten. I think it's been done on one of those old non-photocopiers with the rotating handle that makes everything purple. They're good. Yes, I like them. And then just between two cardboard covers, stapled. So really, if that is the quality of their employee handbook, is it any surprise that their Christmas special of one of their flagship sitcoms called Hallelujah, is in such a state. My theory is they said to Dick Sharples, obviously we'll be doing a Christmas special. And they said this to him after the sets and the actors had been booked and maybe even the day of shooting. Because <laughs> it just feels like, right, what can I do? What can I do? What's Christmassy? Right, Christmas. Right, I'll start out with the 
Christmas party. That's going nowhere. Okay, I'll do a Christmas carol. When was the last time I saw a movie or read a Christmas carol? Oh, my God, it's been years. I'll just type what I remember. It doesn't hang together. Now, speaking of a Christmas carol, you are somewhat of an enthusiast when it comes to the Dickens tale itself. I'm going to propose that our adaptation of A Christmas Carol that we are performing right now in this podcast is more faithful than the one that we just saw in Hallelujah. So should we do this step by step? Should we do it as what internet people call a recap? Is it? Is that what internet people call it? I believe so. Right, Christmas party and Thora Heard starts telling a story about one of her ancestors who was also in the Salvation Army and something that happened in the 19th century. And it involves going to visit Mrs. Scratchit, played by John Sims. So they spent money on the cast, because there's two more guest stars that can't have been cheap. And Mrs. Scratchit complains about her husband beating her. Doesn't she getting drunk and beating her? There, that that is hinted upon, tickling yes. standby. There was a hint of that. This yeah. doesn't add up to anything later. Because he's supposed to be. Because you'd our... think then, well, obviously it's going to be about his soul being saved. But no. And also, Eric is in this flashback as Tiny Tom. So th- the names have been changed to no effect. To protect the innocent. But I don't understand giving Cratchit a heel persona like that. I mean, making him. A wife beater? That's not going to get the audience on his side. Dickens wouldn't have written it like that. That's that fellow out of Oliver Twist. That's his character. The one Bill that... Sykes. Yeah, there you go. Tim Curry played him. That's right. Yeah. Really? Yes. Yeah, uh, opposite um, Sherry Lungy in a film version. Not sure if it was a TV movie, but early 1980s at best. So it turns out that Mr. Scratchit works for Ebenezer Dickens. Now that's a bit <sighs> odd. I'm trying to understand this because it's not really funny. Well, maybe it does strike me as funny. Did it strike you as funny? Hey, look, Arthur Morris is in that Oliver Twist as well. Oh, fantastic. Um, from uh, Citizen Smith. Well, he's in the oh. first few minutes and then Peter Vaughan and then Tony Steedman. I don't... Is it a joke that he's called Ebenezer Dickens? Th- there is a reason which you pointed no, there out isn't. to me. No, there isn't. There, there is. There no, is. No, no, it's not, it's not a reason. It's not even an excuse. There is a line of dialogue faintly indicating... A there's, there's a reason in the story, but there's no reason at all to any of it. The hell is happening to the world? <laughs> I don't think that we can lay all of society's ills on a 1984 Christmas special of Halloween. Just most of them. The point is that it was a struggle. We got through it. Brian, Have we mentioned that Brian Pringle is... Brian Ebenezer. Pringle is, yes. Brian Pringle is Ebenezer... I forgot his name. Dickens. Dickens. Thank you. Thank you. And he gets visited by Jacob, no change of surname, Marley, who is the Crowman. We better mention Bob Scratchit is played by David Dacre. So there is one doubling up there. So they've got John Sims, Brian Pringle and Jeffrey Bailden and then just fudged it. So Ebenezer, oh God, Dickens. Where does a little match girl fit into a Christmas carol? Not <laughs> Let's not get ahead of ourselves, because... What do you mean? We're doing, are I'm, we doing this in linear fashion? Because I don't actually think that the programme itself had any kind of linear fashion. The IMDB gives the transmission date as the 23rd of April 1983, which is completely wrong, <laughs> but in some ways wouldn't surprise me. So Ebenezer well, a year, a year is and a horrible half person, it was made. and he is enthusiastic about being a horrible person, and he goes home and is visited... Instead of being visited by four ghosts, he's visited by one angel because Jacob Marley is in heaven. He's an angel. He's not covered in chains. But he actually seems quite happy. I'm not sure I see the point of his visit because then instead of going through the past, present and the future, there's just a flash forward to the future and and not even that slow build. I mean, Tiny Tom's gone by this point. He's never mentioned again. Oh, yeah, that's right. I've forgotten about him. Yes, exactly. Yeah, he, he never comes back. There's not this slow build of people celebrating the death of an unseen man and then Tiny Tom Tim being dead and then this gradual eventual revelation that it is Scrooge who will be well, Dick, uh, yeah Scrooge whatever will be dead this time this Christmas next year this next Christmas he, he will be dead that's what I'm saying now 
this is what the yet to come segment is building up to. Instead, this is like, right, okay, I have come and I'm a ghost and there's your coffin. You're dead. Ha <laughs> ha. Right. <laughs> Let's see what people say about you and the scratchets and Thora heard uh, just say, well, he was, and they can't think of anything nice to say. And then P- Patsy Rowland turns up as a match girl and said he bought a box of matches off me and it saved my life. And that means that he's going to heaven. Ebenezer's going to heaven. And apparently this is not what he wants to do. He wants to go to hell. He enjoys being bad. And having said about how twee this is, there is that horrible implication where he says, I didn't just make her sell me a box of matches. You know, just just to really sour. Patsy Rollins is like wearing a long ringlet wig and is talking like a little girl. And he's he's he tries to reform himself and decides to give Scratchit his job back and then decides not to give him his job back because the turkey the turkey man <laughs> <laughs> Special guest appearance. Do we explain no, let's not explain that. That's He was enjoying his fifteen minutes of fame. <laughs> like Christmas, he was bloody well everywhere. He was on the hot shoe show. Pebble Mill at one. They should have got him the following year on Family Fortunes. They should, because I know they did a bullseye that was based on a Christmas Carol. <laughs> no, really, I watched it. No, I know. Is this one of the Grumbleweeds, isn't it? They all have the Grumbleweeds in. Oh, okay. Or they yeah. should. So they should have done a Family Fortunes that was based loosely on a Christmas Carol. And right at the end, Max Bygrave should have said, <laughs> "You there." Go out and get the prize turkey. Turkey? <laughs> well, okay. Here's my... Oh, God, we've got to go back to talking about Alleluia. Here is the my... brief moment of sanity talking about Controversial. Turkey, it's a controversial statement, and I don't know if it's a statement that's ever been put towards these individuals previously, but I'm going to say it right now. I think that Jacob Marley, and I hold him principally responsible, not entirely, Jacob Marley and the ghosts, who we never saw, have made a complete and utter balls up of this intervention, re-Ebenezer. Because if Ebenezer is sitting there at the end of all of this, saying, no, no, I don't want to go to heaven, I like being bad, I like being a wrong one, and so on, well, obviously then they haven't convinced them. That's the whole point. No, his position is that as he's going to heaven anyway he may as well just become a good man. And then he immediately goes back on that because he's doing the whole thing about go out and get the turkey. And the boy shouting up says, how much were you paying Bob Scratchit? And he said, three bob a week. And I'll do it for half a crown. When can you start immediately? So he's not given Bob his job back and... Ebenezer looks into the camera and says, well, Leeds wasn't built in a day, so... He says bugger as well, doesn't he? Probably. He does. He shows that out the window. That's not very seasonal. I don't know what the point is. What is the point? Right, okay. Well, it flashes so... back... So we, we then return to the Salvation Army Christmas party and somebody said, what happened to Ebenezer Dickens? And this... I can't say it. You. Say... Oh. What does he say? No, Thora Heard says he changed his name to Charlie... And became a famous writer. It's just so non... (laughs) I can't explain why I find that annoying, but I do. Well, it's sort of meh, isn't it? And then David Dacre says, I'm going to give Eric a very special present. (laughs) (laughs) Takes Eric outside. Thoroughheard asks Patsy Rollins, what is he going to give Eric and Patsy says exactly what he deserves and then Thora realises exactly what Eric deserves and I guess dashes out to prevent a Boxing Day infanticide but she seems really slow on the uptake because Dacre was heavy with menace he was halfway through the act by the time she ever got there I don't know if you've ever seen The Dark Knight Rises where Bane picks Batman up and snaps him over his knee no, no, I haven't. I imagine something like that. 
No Dark Knight spoilers, by the way, because that's on ITV this Christmas. It hasn't already been on. Anyway, overall, I'm glad that I didn't save this up to make it the centerpiece of my Christmas viewing on the network Christmas comedy cobblers ITV DVD. I feel that we have done ourselves uh, a service. Lasting damage. Oh, okay. No, no, I think we've done ourselves a, a good, decent service by just getting out of the way and over and done with this early in the proceedings. Bearing in mind that I'm all confused at the moment and I don't know whether you've visited me on Boxing Day or if it's still Christmas morning. I've got to be honest, unlike the spirits in Hallelujah, you lot have done your job very well because this has taught me a lesson. I do not want to sit through another Hallelujah Christmas special. And if it means that I have to occasionally forego another ITV DVD release, if they ever bring out Sir Yellow, I don't know if they ever had a Christmas special, if they bring out the Unseen Unmade Season 5 of Romany Jones, no, I will shun them, I will look away, and I will head straight to the BBC, Worldwide Department of HMV, and I shall enjoy only good sitcoms from now on. Turkey. Well, that's my job done then. Hang on a minute, your ghost isn't supposed to speak. I just realised that. No, the ghost of Christmas yet to come isn't supposed to speak, but as I am not he, it doesn't matter. And so Mooncat leaned out of the window to shout at passers-by. Not unusual behaviour for Mooncat at any time of year, but this particular instance does have some mild interest for us. Hey there! Hey! Yes, you! Hang on a minute, I recognise you. You're Squiddy, aren't you? That's me. You did that sitcom club edition about Whoops Apocalypse with DCT. That was smashing, that was. It's still available in the archives at sitcomclub.com. Why, thank you. And the 150-page book I wrote about Whoops Apocalypse is still available as a PDF on the two-disc set of that series. Still available from all good retailers. Ah, smashing. Anyway, never mind about that now. What's today? Why, it's All-Star Comedy Carnival Day. Hurrah! I haven't missed it. This spirits all came in one night. I'm saved from the spectre of bloody awful sitcoms forever! What? Even my husband and I? They never did a Christmas special or that, did they? They did. It's available on Network's classic ITV Christmas comedy 4DVD set. Blimey! Right then, here's a shiny sixpence. Nip round to our price and get the gold-plated edition in the window and bring it round here. The sixpence? All right then. Here's my MasterCard. Pin number's YTV321. Quick, buy it before it goes off. Mooncat was as good as his word, and we all know what that's worth. So, as Tiny Tom said, well, I don't remember Tiny Tom saying anything particularly memorable, and I'm not going to quote Little Eric, because he's annoying. I've had enough, really. See you next time, maybe, on the sitcom club. <laughs>